Hello, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. I, well, I'm Shannon, the so creatively named title of this show and the host of this show. It's episode 101. This week, I'm bringing another guest on. I've got Chris from Harvest Lumber. It's another one of these kind of urban sawmill local lumber yards, but from a totally different part of the country. I was excited to welcome some folks from Austin, Texas. So later, we'll be talking to them. First, I wanted to hit on a little bit of business and I wanted to answer a couple of questions. And of course, it's a new month as this is coming out. So it's time to talk about a new featured species and release a new featured species sticker. I know, I know, right? Stickers, people love them. I gotta say thank you to everyone who um, has sponsored the show. Last month, I released this new idea of a featured species and I released the Cherry uh, technical specification kind of info chart sticker. Got a lot of people sponsoring the show, sent out a lot of those suckers. Um, Maybe I overordered a little bit, so I maybe have a few left over despite the great response. I guess I was uh, a little too uh, enthusiastic, maybe. Uh, I've ordered a little bit more uh, conservatively this time around for this month's sticker. But if you don't know, uh, patreon.com slash lumber update is where you can support the show. And at the walnut tier, not only do you get your lumber update show sticker, but every single month uh, you will get a featured species sticker. Either you can take it off and stick it to the wall of your shop or stick it to the wall of something, or you can just leave the backer on and keep it as like an informational card. Each one of these stickers has all the information you'd wanna know about the featured species. And um, spoiler alert, this month, it's Polonia or Kiri or the Royal Princess Tree. Uh, I kinda like Kiri just because the wood is so incredibly popular in Japan. But you know what? Let's not get there just yet. I have a couple of industry news that I want to hit on why it's still relevant. We recently did an episode about wood and aviation. Actually, I did two episodes about it, but I did a specialized one about wood and aviation. And um, shortly after that episode came out, uh, several people published a story about some Japanese scientists who are building a satellite out of wood. And I have a couple of you guys send me this. Uh, very interesting. Um, unfortunately, uh, although I haven't dug real, real deep, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on this, but most of these are just kind of abstracts. They're kind of science sites that are kind of briefly covering the story. They don't really get into the details that much. Now, the satellite has not gone up yet. I imagine once they send the satellite up, there'll be some more in-depth findings, but they sent up some wood into low Earth orbit and several different samples. And long story short, they decided that Magnolia was going to be the uh, Magnolia grandiflora, by the way, was going to be the species of choice. It exhibited the right properties to handle the, the radiation environment, the low Earth uh, orbit gravity or microgravity that exists up there, the extreme drying temperatures, the heat and cooling cycle, all that crazy, crazy stuff that that uh, low Earth orbit, you know, should we call it environment <laughs> or lack of environment, subjects it to. And Magnolia was the winner, and they discovered that this could be a great container, if you will, to put all the sensitive electronics and stuff in. And when it burns up on re-entry, instead of it burning aluminum and other metals and leaving space junk in space and burning off greenhouse gases as it re-enters, it's just wood. It's just wood. It burns up. No problem. So kind of interesting. I'll be following this story as they do eventually build the satellite and push it into orbit to see how it goes. So thanks, everybody, for sending that. That is certainly a different kind of aviation. But uh, let's just say wood is reaching new heights. Boo. Bad. 
In other news, um, I recently guest hosted on a fantastic podcast called OMO. The OMO podcast is specifically targeted at uh, luthiers, but specifically violin makers. And apparently the episode here I did on Tone Woods, episode 60, 61, I think, all about Tone Woods caught their ear and they wanted me to come on and talk about the technical properties of Tone Woods. And you guys know, I, I studied music in college. I have degrees in music. I am a huge fan of music and of course a huge fan of wood. And as much as I geeked out over that Tonewood episode, being able to talk to actual violin makers and violin uh, restorationists was fascinating. So this is uh, for those who are interested in any kind of luthery, if you're interested in music, we definitely go off the nerdy deep end on this. That's uh, Omo Podcast episode 56. Uh, O-M-O-P-O-D, omopod.com slash 56, or just check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's there as well. And thanks again to uh, uh, the Omo folks. Uh, that was so much fun. Uh, I hope we can do that again sometime. So check it out if you want some more Tonewood nerdiness. Enough of that. Let's get over to the featured species, Polonia, um, Kiri, the princess tree or the royal princess tree. This tree... Uh, it's well, let's talk basics. It is uh, uh, Polonia tormentosa is the botanical name. Again, in Japan, it's known as Kiri. It is highly sought after in Japan and used a lot in Japan for everything from cabinets to clogs to soundboards, tone wood in the koto, the Japanese stringed instrument. Uh, it's even found in the governmental seal of the prime minister's office. So this is a revered tree in Japan. Interestingly enough, um, it's native to Asia, and it showed up in North America as the fruit of the polonia was actually used as packing material, literally the prototype packing peanut. You know, that actually raises a question. Did they ever actually use peanuts for packing? I think they did. And then styrofoam became like styrofoam peanuts. Um, so, it, you know, plant material was used as packing material, and the polonia uh, fruit was used as packing packing peanuts, essentially. When the goods were unpacked from the crates and things, the uh, packing material was just kind of dumped. And what happened is all of those fruits, well, the fruit is nothing but, you know, there's a seed inside the fruit. The fruits took seed. And suddenly there were these groves of polonia trees popping up near the ports and a lot of the North American ports. And the tree grows incredibly fast, like up to 20 feet in a year when it's younger. It certainly will start to slow down as it gets a little bit older, but this sucker grows super fast. So it started to kind of catch on and people are like, wow, this is a pretty tree. It's kind of an ornamental tree. It has very pretty flowers, uh, pinks and purples, and the, the flowers kind of turn up at the end and almost look like little lanterns on the end of it. It's a very, very pretty ornamental tree. And it started to get planted a bunch of places, but also because it grows so fast and because it essentially will regrow from existing root structure. Like you can chop this down and if you leave that stump alone, little shoots will start to come out. It'll start regrowing again. It is now actually listed as invasive in North America. Well, let's just say some people consider it invasive. I guess there's some holdouts that say that it's not invasive or maybe are quibbling over what the definition of invasive is, but it is everywhere now from coast to coast. And what it's really known for is it's incredibly high strength to weight ratio. This actually makes balsa wood 
look weak. And I know a lot of you are thinking, well, balsa, what is weak? But you think about how light and low density balsa is, its strength is, is pretty impressive. And the Kiri, I'm just gonna keep calling it Kiri because I like the sound of that, and it's easier to say than Polonia. Um, it's, uh, it's super, super strong, and I've got a lot of personal experience in using it for uh, strength purposes, lightweight strength purposes. A little bit of history, though. It was actually the Polonia, and the scientific name Polonia tormentosa. There are several different species under the Polonia genus. It was actually originally named for Anna Pavlovna, who was the, oh, let's see, what did Wikipedia call her? The um, bride consort to the Netherlands. She came, uh, she was the daughter of Tsar <laughs> I, um, <laughs> came over and was the bride queen in the Netherlands. And this tree was, uh, when they uh, brought it over from Asia, because there were always people, plant explorers going over to Asia and digging up, literally digging up plants and bringing them back into Europe, because at the time, you know, the late 1800s, Asia was all the rage. You know, we were just opening up uh, China and Korea and Japan. Well, Japan to a lesser extent. And we were bringing over all these plants and they became very, very in vogue in Europe. So, of course, this tree was so beautiful and it was named after Anna Pavlovna, which uh, that was my best Russian accent, Pavlovna. Um, it was then, of course, you know, renamed as things happened over the years and into uh, Polonia. So replace the V with a W, although maybe if you're German, you would be Polovnia anyway, without that long Russian O. But anyway, um, and of course, uh, Anna Pavlovna was a royal, and that was where the royal princess tree, she was a princess, Princess Pavlovna, um, the royal princess tree, that's where the name comes from. And that's where all these various names from princess tree to um, Polonia to Kiri, I don't know where Kiri comes from, other than the fact that that's what the Japanese called it, what it's native in Asia. You know, that's interesting. Because the botanical name is Polonia tormentosa. I wonder what the Japanese, have they just always called it Kiri? And maybe, you know, binomial um, taxonon taxonomy? Taxonomy didn't uh, really come into vogue until much, much later. So the Japanese and the Chinese had been calling it something for millennia. It was probably Kiri. Um, I don't know that they had a, a scientific name for it. And if they did, it certainly wouldn't have been in Latin. So, yeah, there's a little... Uh, uh, ethnocentrism there for you. So as I said, this stuff grows super, super fast. And when I was volunteering as an interpreter at the Stepping Stone Museum, we had uh, a, a cookie, a, a round of a Polonia trunk. And this thing was about an 18 to 20 inch diameter cookie. And it was about four inches thick. And we used to, we would be talking to visitors and we would pick it up and we'd use that cross section to kind of demonstrate how a tree grows. And we talk about growth rings and how people understand if you count the growth rings, you get the year. And usually as a joke, um, we would take that rather massive looking cookie. Again, imagine four inches thick and 20 inches in diameter, big, big armful. And we would take that and like toss it to the person nearest you. And you get that person like, oh my God, they're throwing this like 20 pound thing at me. And this this cookie was so incredibly lightweight. It was like less than two pounds to the point where no one ever dropped it. Everyone always caught it, but they would usually stumble backwards expecting it to be so much heavier and be completely shocked at how lightweight it is. And this comes from it being a ring porous tree with really big pores, like really big pores. And um, well, let's just say, we'll call it ring porous to semi ring porous. 
It has a lot of really large pores that are definitely ordered together in rows, but there's almost a gradient from the really big, tightly packed pores in a ring to kind of medium-sized pores, a little bit more medium-spaced, and then another gradient of some smaller pores that are a little bit, um, a little bit sparser there, and and often kind of lozenge-shaped um, parenchyma with kind of. Uh, oval and sometimes double pores. I keep saying pores because there is a lot of dead space, a lot of dead air in this tree. And even the late growth that is denser is still, even though they're smaller pores, they tend to be those double pores. So there's still even a lot of dead air in the denser material. And the fact that they're so completely well-ordered, if you look at a cross section of a stump of, of a Kiri polonia tree, this is almost like the definition of what ring porous should look like because those pores are so large. That's what you see immediately. When you look at it a little bit closer or maybe look under, under magnification, and actually if you go to the wood database and look up their listing and you see their 10 times magnification one, you can very clearly see that gradient from large to medium to small pore. But then if you look at the unmagnified end grain, um, you can very clearly see those large rings but you can't quite see the smaller pores. It just kind of looks like lignum, you know, wood stuff in between. But the long and short of this is the density of this is, let me get the numbers here. Uh, the density is, uh, well, let's just look at the, the dried weight because you know, density, how many people really know what that means? Kilograms per, per cubic meter, those are the units. You know, the density is 280. Does that really mean anything to you? Not so much. Maybe in Europe, but even then, how many of you are handling a cubic meter of this stuff? The weight, however, is 18 pounds per cubic foot. Um, again, not a lot of us handling uh, a cubic foot, but think about this in relation to another light wood like Western Red Cedar, which is a about, oh goodness, I should really know this off the top of my head. I want to say it's 28. Um, please hold. I should have all this stuff looked up ahead of time, but I don't. I'm just going off memory. Now my memory is even starting to fail me. Uh, 23, 23, I said 28, it's 23 pounds. So you're looking at, what is that, five pounds lighter? Um, which is pretty significant. And to me, Western Red is one of the lighter trees um, uh, that, that you really, really want run into in commercial, commercial use. White Pine, on the other hand, I think a lot of people have some experience working with White Pine. That's a little bit heavier at about 25 pounds. So um, go to um, look at a lot of the the, the pines that you'll get in the big box stores, specifically pines, not, not the fir, um, but pine, maybe possibly hemlock. Hemlock, if I remember correctly, is 28 or 29 pounds. Northeastern white, 25. So think of your typical pine anywhere from 25 to 29. Western red being even lighter than that at 23. And then polonia coming in way below that at 18 pounds. It is very, very, very lightweight. But the cool part is, is because of that ring porous nature and because of the neatly ordered pores with really big wide open pores, you take all the weight out in a very predictable, uh, structurally sound manner. And those pores actually form this kind of lattice work that ends up being super strong, very much the same way that the human femur is a porous bone. There's a lot of strength built into that kind of lattice structure that comes from it. So 
take that lightweight, take that ordered poor nature, and you end up with really high crushing strengths, um, uh, um, um, modules of rupture, modules of elasticity. Now, granted, certainly those numbers are a hell of a lot lower than something like hickory. But again, you have to think proportionally. You think about the density and the hardness. The Janko hardness, by the way, is a very low 300. So the hardness is similar to something of Western red, um, but substantially lighter. And the MOR and MOE numbers proportionally are super, super high. And that's why it ends up being the lightest or the best strength to weight ratio hardwood that's out there. Moreover, while it has a TR ratio of 1.6, kind of run of the mill, that movement is incredibly low. Uh, tangentially, it's less than 4% movement. Radially, it's about 2% movement. So it's a quite stable wood. And this actually makes sense because of that low density. You've got all that dead air. So the wood fibers can soak up moisture and expand and contract and expand into that dead air without kind of warping the overall board. It ends up being very, very stable. The tree is gonna be, you know, medium-sized tree, can get up to about 60 feet tall. Um, not real, you know, enormous girth to the thing, about four foot diameter at its largest. Most of the time you're gonna find them 18 to 24 inches. And that's like within the first couple of years, you're going to see that kind of growth. It's gonna grow 20 feet and bulk up to 12 to 18 inches in diameter within like the first year or two. So you can imagine this tree has ended up becoming an incredible plantation tree. And because of the demand for it in Japan, as I mentioned, it's used for cabinetry, specifically tansu, which I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, it's used for plywood, for, for veneers and plywood. It's used for making clogs, which I think is kind of cool. And that density, that an incredible low density, you remember the talk about soundboards, that density is perfect for the koto. Now the hardness is quite low, but if you've ever heard a Japanese koto, uh, it's a very distinct sound. So I talked about in the Tone Winage uh, episode about low density, high hardness gives you that ring. And that's where a lot of like the spruces and things come in as great tone woods. This is very, very low density, but also quite soft. But here again, proportionally speaking, it is quite soft, but the density is also so low that it ends up being similar proportionally to something like spruce. Now it won't take a beating like spruce would, would due to the lower hardness, but I also think that's what adds quite a bit of twang to the Japanese koto. Now the koto is a very different stringed instrument. If I remember correctly from my ethnomusicology classes, it's a much lower tension on the strings itself, which could also attribute to a lot of that twang. But from a soundboard perspective, I think that actually jives with what I, what I understand of it with it being softer. But here's the thing. Um, Tansu, if you're not familiar with Tansu, Tansu could be generically known as Japanese cabinetry, but Tansu has its heritage. And I actually did a Renaissance woodworker uh, video episode on this years ago, probably 10 years ago. Uh, I built a couple of Tansu cases and actually built a small Tansu urn for a friend of mine's um, pets who had both passed away. And um, that was made out of Kiri or Polonia. And um, Tansu was originally meant for merchants to carry their wares. So say you were an apothecary and you had all kinds of little vials and things like that. You would put them inside this tansu chest. And I'm pretty sure that saying tansu chest is redundant. Um, 
but I don't know anything about Japanese language, so I'm going to continue to say Tansu chest. Someone feel free to correct me if you want. But you would put all your wares in your Tansu chest and essentially hoist it on your back and hike to the next village. And these were essentially traveling salesmen going from village to village, and they had to carry everything on their back. So it was important to them to have a good case wood that was super lightweight. You know, their wares were going to be heavy enough. You didn't want a super heavy case to carry that around. So something like Japanese cedar, which of course is being used in a lot of the building materials and in some ways is also kind of revered as a sacred wood over there. This was something that was a little bit more uh, bourgeois, not bourgeois, um, utilitarian. Sorry, I'm totally mixing political dogma here. But the merchant class probably wouldn't have warranted the use of cedar. Uh, where that was being used for temples and, and buildings and things like that. This was a lesser wood that needed to be used. And they found this incredibly lightweight, highly workable, easy to work, doesn't, you know, works great with hand tools, which is what they were using for the time, makes a super strong case that if you think about the wear and tear of this case being lugged around, taken off your back, dropped down on the ground, opened up, pulled the wares out, closed up, picked up, put down, picked up, put down, hauled across, you know, however many hundreds of miles up down hill and veil all that stuff these things took a lot of abuse and if you're at all familiar with tansu hardware um the funny thing is is the hardware probably weighed more than the case itself but these cases took a hell of a beating and this uh this kiri was up to the test now some of it uh the the polonia tree is kind of brown i like to think of it as kind of silvery grayish brown when you first cut it open, when you first mill it, it's going to be a very, very creamy, lighter, creamy color. It will start to oxidize very quickly and take on that kind of gray-brown color. Uh, personally, I think it's quite beautiful, but you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's kind of a plain wood. So a lot of the Tansu chests were the substrate was Kiri, and then they were veneered with a prettier wood, like a Zelkova or something like that. It was a very utilitarian wood. And I can tell you uh, at face, uh, personally speaking, I have a lot of exposure to this wood. I have, goodness, um, I've built several Tansu out of it. Uh, I built a chest of drawers out of it, kind of a, a mission style, um, uh, frame and panel side, kind of corner post looking chest of drawers. And the whole thing was built, including the drawers, was built out of it. Um, I've turned it before. Uh, it's actually kind of hard to turn because the density is so low that uh, <laughs> you, you will shred it very quickly unless you take a very, very light cut with a very sharp uh, gouge. Um, so I've turned some pins from it. I turned uh, a couple of ingrain boxes from it. I turned bowls from it. Um, I use it to make drawer bottoms all the time because I can, you know, plane it up super, super quickly with a scrub plane, kind of leave it alone, glue up a panel, scrub it and throw it into a drawer bottom. You get this really strong uh, drawer bottom that's super lightweight. And now that I know that it's used for Koto, it's got a nice ring to it. I'm always tapping the drawer bottom. It always sounds kind of nice. And that explains it. Um, I also recently have used it to make a stick chair and a Windsor chair. Um, I came into uh, a Kiri log a couple of years ago uh, from a friend who had a tree come down in their farm and I went and bucked it into like six, six, six foot lengths or so, dig far enough back on my Instagram and you'll see pictures of me like the typical, you know, gritting idiot picture in the back of my hatchback with all these logs stacked up, you know, the, the frame of the car practically touching the tires because I'd loaded it up with so much wood. 
I still have uh, several log rounds in my backyard, which goes back to that episode about how long will a log keep. I've also split several of those six foot rounds into wedges, um, riven out quite a bit. And at first I was worried that would this make good Windsor chair material? And I played with it, I steam bent it, it rives incredibly well because of that like stereotypical ring pour structure. This stuff is like, like it just unzips. You just kind of pressed on the fro by hand and the stuff will split right along those pore lines. Super easy to work with in that respect. I was actually working some the other night and doing a demonstration for the hand tool school on shaping a spindle. And I used a bit of ribbon um, uh, Polonia, Kiri, for it. I love working with this stuff. Um, from a hand tool perspective, with that Janka hardness being so low, chisels, saws, planes, beautifully. There, there's nothing hand tool unfriendly about it. You know, you do have to have sharper tools to prevent from crushing it because it is quite soft, but it's an absolute joy to work with. In many ways, it reminds me of butternut, both in its appearance, but also in its workability. Now, butternut, I want to say, has a Janka hardness of around 500 or so. So this is certainly softer, but I would definitely list butternut as an alternative species to this if you're not able to get polonia. Um, balsa would be a good alternative. Uh, falcata, another one that's super lightweight, super similar workability. Sassafras, you'll actually find will be similar in workability, similar ring porous structure, similar hardness. Uh, catalpa and white oak also would be similar, obviously quite a bit harder. Catalpa is not that much harder, uh, probably two to three times harder. I want to say catalpa is around 700. So about twice as hard. White oak, obviously, you know, four times harder, but similar. All of those ring porous kind of coarse grained woods that are brownish in color are going to be similar to polonia. But I highly recommend you give this tree a shot. It can be readily available. I'm starting to see more and more lumber yards who are carrying it. And especially if you tap into the wood miser owners and the urban sawyers, this tree grows freaking everywhere. So it's real easy to find it. You also find that there are several managed plantations in North America, as well as in Europe, uh, certainly in Japan as well. Um, there's a uh, Polonia foundations that are uh, kind of promoting future plantation growth because it regenerates like from the same stump and so quickly. This is actually a, a very renewable, very sustainable resource that can get you lumber sized trees within a couple of years. I want to say the harvest um, iteration is around five to eight years and they're able to get decent lumber sized planks out of it. Now you're not going to be seeing 12 inch wide boards out of that, but it is typical to see four to six inch wide. It grows, you know, very quickly. Um, it doesn't, the morphology of it doesn't branch out super quickly. So you don't end up with a lot of pin knots or, or knots in it until you get higher up the bowl. So it really makes a fantastic lumber tree. I think a lot of people have been put off because of its very low softness, um, very low Janko hardness and thinking, oh, that's going to be a completely weak wood. But if you really start to understand what makes wood strong, you know, it's such a relative term, but proportionally speaking, strength to weight stuff is off the charts. So that's why it is my featured species of the month. Definitely get your hands on some of this stuff and give it a shot. And again, anybody who in the month of June is a walnut tier supporter at Patreon is going to get their Polonia fact sheet slash sticker. So enough of that. Um, I do have one question, uh, actually a multi-parter, but I'm gonna break out this one question from Joshua. Um, he, his grandfather, um, 
about 25 years ago, planted like 150 polonia trees because, and I quote, he heard they were going to be worth a lot. <laughs> I'd love to know where he heard that from and in the context. That sounds fantastic. 25 years ago, so the late 90s, uh, polonia was going to be worth a lot. Um, sadly, he goes on, he says, they're not worth the $25 per board foot my grandfather speculated. Good Lord. Local mills are selling kiln-dried polonia for about 3 to $4 a board foot. That, uh, actually, I believe uh, Joshua's in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly. But that, that jives with what I'm seeing as well. 3 to $4 a board foot. The trees on this plot haven't been taken care of, but there are probably about 50 to 80 butt logs that can be harvested and that he can slab saw. He has his own um, sawmill for this. Um, it's not enough to make it worth a logging company's time. The trees are in there from 16 to 28 inches in diameter. With that also jives, probably got up to about 18 inches in the first couple of years, and then it started to slow down over the next, you know, 22, 23 years. But getting up to 28 inches is certainly getting. That's a very mature tree there. So he's got a sawmill. He's going to fell the trees and and um, saw them into boards. He says Polonia air dries pretty well, from what I understand. So the question is, what thickness is most likely to be profitable to sell air-dried Polonia? Do I slab saw it all at eight quarter and ten quarter? Am I crazy to think this slum, uh, to sell this lumber air-dried? Um, I've felled and milled one of the trees. It's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. So I need to figure out the way to make this profitable with so many logs. Again, 50 to 80 butt logs here. So here's the thing, Joshua. Um, Polonia is not really a commercially sought after tree. It is starting to be more and more available at some of these lumber yards because the tree has become so rampant. And there's a lot of logs coming down as people are cutting these trees down and they're growing back just as fast. I do think there is a small market that's starting to emerge for it, but I also think the market has spoken in that 3 to $4 a board foot for kiln-dried material is probably about as high as you're going to see it go. Um, there's so much of it readily available, certainly not any scarcity, plus there's not a huge demand for it from the market to drive that up any higher. A lot of other species out there that are going to look similar, that are going to have a greater demand, and although they may be more expensive, people are going to buy them over Polonia simply because of the perceived value of, oh, I've heard of oak. You know, oh yeah, oak's more expensive. That's going to be a better tree, going to be a quote, stronger tree, even though that may be a bit of a misconception. So my recommendation here is to think long-term. Now, uh, I believe Joshua said he doesn't actually own the land, but he owns the trees. So, and the owner is going to sell off the land. So there's a bit of a ticking clock on this. What I recommend is you need to get the logs off the land um, and you need to find a place where you can store those logs. And it may be that either you have some land yourself or you can talk to a local sawmill that has a log yard and you can rent some space or you could possibly sell some of those logs to a local sawmill. Now you're gonna get obviously much less than three to $4 a board foot, but you might be able to offload a significant number of those logs that won't require you to do anything. Like maybe you can you know, transport them to them and get a little bit more or they can come pick it up and you'll get a little bit less. But if you have a space to store some of them, I can tell you from firsthand experience, I've got a Polonia log that's been sitting on the ground in my yard in the mud for five years and it's perfectly fine. I don't have a problem with it sitting there for several more years. Um, I just took another one of the logs that's been there for five years and I just um, rove it. I have riven it. <laughs> 
such an archaic word. Who knows what the, uh, the, the tense is on that. Anyway, I split it and it was just fine. So you do have quite a bit of time. The clock is obviously getting those logs off that land. So think about kind of doing this in stages. You don't necessarily need to saw it all right away, but you also might be able to reach out to one of the lumber, one of the local yards and become their source for this material. And as you saw it, you can sell it, you know, so maybe you saw up a couple of logs, run a truckload over to them, drop it off and sell it. Maybe if you have multiple yards, you can do it that way as well. Plus, I highly recommend throw yourself up a website and specialize in Polonia. There are people looking for it. I have members of the hand tool school right now because I've been talking about this wood for a while in the school. I've got people who are looking for Polonia right now. Um, If there is a source people will buy it. And because the boards themselves don't get to be super big, they're sized enough that you might be able to ship them relatively well. And because they're so super light, you actually could probably ship them quite affordably. So don't think about this, I gotta do it all in one shot and saw up all these logs right away. The logs are gonna be fine, seal them, have a place to stick them, and you might be surprised how long you can continue to work through log by log by log. And instead of having to sell off 20 logs worth of lumber, maybe you're selling off you know, a pickup truck's worth of lumber at a time. And it can become kind of a hobby that might pay for itself. That would be my recommendation. Now, of course, if there are any listeners out there who uh, want to buy some Polonia, reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with Joshua. So that being said, folks, let's move on to the main uh, part of our uh, episode here. And that's my conversation with Chris over at Harvest Lumber. So today I'd like to welcome Chris Burns from Harvest Lumber down in Austin, Texas to the show. And I specifically wanted to bring Chris on because, well, they specialize in um, urban lumber, but like felled from the city, uh, specifically, I think the city of Austin. And I would love to get uh, his perspectives on working with the city and working with felled logs and urban logs and all that fun stuff. So before I get ahead of myself, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks, Shannon. Thanks for having me on. So let me get this right. Um, Harvest Lumber, you guys have been around since what, 2017? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, August, 2017. All right. Even more specifically. So in the, <laughs> in the great grand picture of the lumber world, you guys are new kids on the block, which I kind of love. Um, cause I deal with people who've been in business for hundreds of years on a daily basis and lots of tradition and we've always done it this way. So I'm always excited to talk to the new kids, um, who kind of like don't have tradition and are willing to try anything new. So can you give me kind of the, What's the origin story of Harvest Lumber? When did you get the radioactive spider bite and what superpowers have you gained since then? Um, yeah, so my background is furniture, furniture maker. And uh, my business partner had an old LT40 Woodmiser uh, that he, he also was a furniture maker. So he's a old shop mate of mine. And, uh, one day I think I sent him an email and I was like, Hey, um, what do you think about starting uh, urban lumber business? And he was like, I was actually thinking the same thing. Let's, uh, let's talk. Huh. And so we had a few meetings and, um, yeah, it kind of took off fast from there. We were both still doing furniture at the time, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to try something new, get out of the hustle, uh, into a different hustle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Just a slightly different flavored hustle. Right. Yeah. 
Well, that's particularly interesting. So what was the catalyst there? Like what made you just think, you know, let's try urban logging, like or urban lumber. Well, where, where did that come from? Yeah. I, I guess a better, better origin would be, I was at an install one day doing something that I, uh, wasn't having a great time doing. I was, um, installing some fancy cabinetry and doing an entire library in someone's house. And I was staring out the window at someone cutting down this huge ash tree, uh, across the street from the house. And they were just chopping it up into, you know, tiny pieces going to get chipped up. And, um, uh, I'd seen that a bunch of times before and I was like, why is nobody doing this in Austin? Um, started doing some research and, there were a couple of places around the country at the time. Uh, this, this was like 2016. Um, Wood from the Hood in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. They've been around for a long time. Uh, yeah. Other than that, there were a couple of other ones, Angel City in L.A. and uh, Epilogue in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And that's about all I could really find other than people that were there, – there were lots of people just making things out of – more, you know, urban lumber, just kind of DIYers and stuff. But, uh, it, I wasn't aware of many businesses doing it either retail or, uh, on a larger scale. So that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, we had epilogue lumber on, uh, not too long ago. Uh, although yeah, at this Dave's point, great. Uh, who knows? Oh yeah. Fascinating, fascinating conversation, wealth of, of experience there. So, um, you already had the mill. Um, I mean, what was your buddy using it for at the time? Just his own? Uh, yeah, for for his business, uh, they would they would uh, find. He's a real. He's a great uh, scrapper. Uh, I guess I don't know if that's that's derogatory for him, but um, he's really good at. He's really always been really good at salvaging things, and uh, so he would find you know see a log coming down and find a way to to harvest it and uh, mill it. And he was just like air drying at the time. And, um, uh, yeah, he was just using it for his own. So it was an old, a really old LT, uh, 40 from, uh, like late eighties. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how long Woodmiser has been around because they've just become, they've become, well, the, the whole idea of owning your own band mill has become so much more approachable. I mean, it's cheaper than a car. And there's so many yeah. people, well, some of them, um, <laughs> there's yeah, so many the non hydraulic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got one at, at my yard that is that uh, we've got an LT 50 and then we just got another one now I'm forgetting the model number, but yeah, slightly more expensive, like only 10 times more expensive than the first one. But I mean, we're a large commercial yard, so it kind of made sense, but yeah, they're, they're, you forget just how long that company has been in business and how long they've essentially been doing this. And, you know, we talk yeah. about this new quote, new idea of urban logging and like micro mills. And these guys have been like, what are you talking about? I've been doing this for 50 years. <laughs> this is nothing new. Yeah. That's- yeah. Not much has changed. Like from that old LT 42, we have a new LT 40 wide with hydraulic, everything. And the like bones are the same. Like they, they have just like tried and true, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that actually brings me to kind of my next point. What does your current operation look like? What's your, um, you've got obviously how many mills do you have? Just the one or just, I just have two. Um, yeah, we have that LT 40 wide and then we have a, 
a Lucas uh, hmm. slabbing mill. Okay. So for really big logs for slabs, we'll use the Lucas mill. And uh, as far as your sawing practice goes, is it pretty much at your yard or do you have a mobile operation as well? No, we don't do any mobile uh, okay. milling. We, um, we have another, so we have a retail location and then we have a sawmill location. And so all the saw, saw milling, the air drying and kiln drying uh, are at that location. We have two kilns. They're uh, DH kilns. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so, uh, stacks of, big stacks of lumber, air drying on pallets and logs everywhere. It's pretty wild. Nice. Nice. So you're getting, well, let me first, uh, what's your, what's your kiln capacity? You've got two of them. How big are they? There it's, so we, we got a 40 foot shipping container that we cut in half and, uh, made some really, we got a fabricator to make some really nice, um, uh, track and cart system. Uh-huh. Uh, so there are two 20 foot containers. We can do three, 3000 to 5,000 board feet in each one. Nice. And so we're, we're air drying for a long, you know, at least, at least a year on, on, um, eight quarter or slabs, a little longer on the thicker slabs and then kiln drying. So we have our cycles down to where each kiln is only running about four weeks, sometimes, sometimes longer, but, uh, not, not too much longer than, than, uh, six weeks. Interesting. What, what kind of moisture content do you have when it goes into the kiln? You're so dry. We, we sh- yeah. We shoot to have it below, below 20 before it goes in the kiln for sure. Right. So right. in the teens and nice. then we, and then we, sorry, go ahead. So the, the logs themselves, I mean, you've got a, a log yard, where are you sourcing the logs and how are they getting to you? Um, so we pick them up mostly, but sometimes arborists will bring them to us. So we work, we work with the city. We helped create a program that uh, it's called Log, our Wood Reclamation Program. It's uh, City of Austin um, Urban Forestry Parks and Rec Division. Hmm. There's a bunch of different divisions of urban forestry, but we're specifically working with uh, Parks and Rec. Nice. And they were really, they had two young arborists that were really interested in um, what we were, wanted to do and uh, created this program where once a month uh, there is a log pickup open to the public uh, if you live in Austin. Um, and so it's, it's a, they didn't want any, anyone, you know, coming to the parks to pick up, you know, because of liability stuff. So they, they have a holding yard where, uh, it's the first Friday of every month. Uh, anyone can come pick up a log if you have the means. Um, they don't do any, they won't help you load it or anything. So you have to have equipment. Right. Um, so, you know, for a while we were the only ones really going to it. And, um, we actually don't even go there that much anymore just because we get, we're able to get stuff, uh, other places. But so, yeah, we, we work with the city and then we work with, um, tree companies and arborists and we've developed relationships with uh just a, a couple of handfuls over the over the years and we they're all they've all been really good to us um we haven't really had to reach out beyond that now just because it's filling our capacity uh what we get from them and then you know we get a lot of calls from homeowners and we usually just try to hook them up with one of the 
arborists or tree companies that we use. Right. Now that's a kind of a nice network. Everybody's scratching everybody else's back all the time. That seems to be the, the only way to work it. And so many times when I hear it doesn't work well, you've got the person that says, yeah, I'll take logs and they take a bunch of logs and then they're like immediately full. And, you know, next week the arborist or the tree company is like, I got more logs and like, I don't have any room. And then you kind of lose touch and kind of have to, to keep that ongoing thing. It is interesting though, that the city, like the log pickup thing. I mean, I, I like the fact that you kind of immediately disqualify like just the average yokel because um, you got to be able to move a log. But at the same time, one wonders, like, do the logs get taken now? Like, I mean, are there enough people yeah. who have that capability? That's yeah, they even let people. That's another reason we don't we haven't really gone that much because there are other people going now, and uh, if you don't get there early. It's, uh, you're just kind of waiting around and, but yeah, there's, there, uh, are people now that are bringing like a chainsaw mill, like an Alaskan uh-huh. and they'll let them mill it on site, really? which is, which is impressive. Uh, and then, yeah, there's like, I know of one other guy, young guy that's kind of starting up a urban, urban, uh, lumber. I don't know what, if he, what his plans are really, but. Uh, other than making stuff himself, but he's got like a log, log arch on a trailer situation mm-hmm. where he's picking stuff up. And other guys will try to wrestle smaller logs onto their pickup trucks, which is <laughs> into the hatchback uh, of their Volkswagen rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of have to look the other direction and hope for the best. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I, I understand that the motto is keep Austin weird, but that's pretty weird. Like, I wouldn't think <laughs> that there would be a lot of people. Like, I know um, down south of me, one of the counties south of me near D.C. is Montgomery County. And they have a similar type thing where I don't think it's once a month, but it's like once a quarter. But the county actually runs their own mill. So what they have is oh, cool. a board sale. You know, and it's open to the public and it's super, super inexpensive. Um, but like, I, I couldn't imagine if they said you have logs, like no one would, no one would show up. Like, what am I going to do with a log? I could be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, maybe there's more people out there than I thought. I mean, certainly, um, actually last time I was in Austin, well, technically I was in the San Marcos region teaching at a woodworking school and um, just spent a lot of time wandering around Austin. And it's, I mean, from a, arts and crafts perspective. I mean, like everywhere you turn, there was some maker somewhere. So I guess it yeah. kind of makes sense that Austin wouldn't have that problem, but that's uh, that's really interesting to me that like you gotta, not only do they not always have logs, but you gotta get there early. That's crazy. It's really like exciting when you think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Does it you get- know, uh, I don't know that it's that many people, but yeah, it is enough to, um, and it's probably a lot of the same people Right. But, uh, sure. Yeah. It is enough to, that there's a demand for it and they keep the program going. So. Right. And, and that's the important that's part. Cause if it didn't, yeah. then the city would very quickly shut it down. Yeah. So do you know, um, because I mean, these were, uh, um, city arborists that you were working with when it originally started, do you know what kind of thought goes into like the replanting side of things? Like, are there actually active like urban canopy management going on in the city side? Uh, yeah, I, but I don't, I can't speak in detail to that. No, I, I don't know. That. And, and we have a great, uh, nonprofit, nonprofit organization here called tree folks. And they do a lot of, uh, that like promoting, um, you know, 
tree growth in the city. They, they will go around and put flags in people's yards, and you can redeem that flag for a tree to plant, huh. like a native species or something that grows well here. Oh, very interesting. But yeah, I, 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 I'm not knowledgeable enough to know about the what the city is doing. I understand that. Yeah. I understand that. I might actually just uh, offline, I think we should talk about um, some contacts because I definitely am interested sure. in getting into those conversations at some point. Um, yeah, I can hook you up with the, uh, the people that helped start the program. They'd be happy, more than happy to talk to you. Sure. That actually brings me to a question. On your website, you've got something that says you're a member of the Urban Wood Network. Can you tell me what that's about? Yes. Uh, so, and I am not going to be able to give you hundred uh, percent perfect details about this, but um, <laughs> Urban Network Wood Network started. It, it was two two organizations that combined. Um, there was, I think, Wood Wood Network West or something something going on in. Um, Northern California, like Sacramento area, mm-hmm. they're a big. There's a big urban lumber business there, and they also are like a wood miser dealer. And but the woman who ran that program or that business or runs the business, she had a similar uh, network trying to link up all the different urban lumber businesses and and uh, try to have some standards in place mm-hmm. because it's such a new a new concept. And then the Urban Wood Network, which I believe is in the Midwest somewhere, I can't remember exactly where, um, they were doing the same thing. So I think they just, they joined forces like three years ago. Um, and so we were a member actually of the West Coast one, but then we got kind of moved over to the Urban Wood Network uh, um, group. And um, they... There's now like a Texas chapter trying, there's trying to start a Texas chapter. So all of the urban, urban wood uh, businesses in Texas can be in the same, you know, kind of page. Uh, Uh And so, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a business in in Houston called uh, Helmwood. uh, And they started up around the same time we did. And we've, we've chatted a bunch through like social media and stuff. Um, and uh, he's got a seems like he's got a solid, um, solid business going. And then there's another business on the outskirts of Austin, actually west. If you're familiar with Dripping Springs, it's like maybe 45 minutes west of Austin. Okay. And they are, uh, oh, what are they? Uh, Texas Urban. Oh, this is terrible. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> um, anyways, th- this this guy, Devin, uh, who owns this business, he is working with uh, Texas uh, the, or the Urban Wood Network to get that uh, local Texas chapter going. So he would be a lot, uh, he would be a good resource to talk to about that better than me. So um, it, in, in essence, it's really just a professional networking group amongst yeah. like businesses. Do you, does it offer yes, you, and, does it and offer they're you also, sorry, I, I, I just want to say they're also working on a national standard for urban lumber, like uh, tracking, you know, where the wood comes, comes from, okay. what is 
That's what I was wondering is, is does that provide any kind of like, uh, not for lack of a better term, chain of custody, but provenance and things like that. Interesting. No, yeah, they were creating a chain. uh, And I'm not sure where that process is at right now, but um, it's definitely works. Interesting. So certainly, you know, it's grassroots in its early stages to begin with, but the, the more of these kind of coalitions, for lack of a better term, we can see, the more legitimacy I think it comes from, you know, the small micro mills um, and just this whole business of, of urban logging as a resource. Because certainly I, I speak from, you know, the establishment, you know, the man uh, yeah, coming from yeah, the yeah. commercial sector. And so many of the buyers that I talk to day in and day out, they for lack of a better term, they kind of turn their nose up, noses up at it because, well, that's not going to make the grade here and that's not going to work there. But at the same time, design um, practices and so many of the architects, interior designers I talk to are very into the, not only the unique nature and the grade, um, whatever you want to call it, rustic or, you know, character grade, sure. but then the story, sure. the story is what really, it's the same thing that made reclaimed lumber you know, a big deal. This was on a, sure. you know, in a building here, or this was on a boat here. This, the fact that you can say that, you know, the paneling in this wall was from the, the street on the corner of third and, you know, Pembroke or something like that, that really carries a huge story here. And the more that we can capitalize on that, the more that frankly, you guys could outcompete the bigger industries because they can't tell that story. And we have chain of custody yeah. all day long to tell you, you know, where it came from, especially on the, the, you know, the tropical species and things like that down to a stump. I can tell you all that, but there's really nothing unique about that. It's, you know, concession grid square 21. Um, it's really, right. that's, that's the best we can do. So the other thing I wonder is at what point we start to see collaboration from like, think of it like the old library system. Like you go to the library and it's like, I'm looking for this book and though my branch doesn't have it, but you know, the branch over in Tuscaloosa has it and they can transfer it over. Um, I had a conversation with a company called Cambium Carbon out of DC that's looking to try to connect the dots between all of you guys, all the mill owners and the buyers um, yeah, as I, a way I, um... to provide a resource, like as a woodworker. Like, I love this unique stuff. And some of the stuff, I'm going to get into this in a second, some of the stuff that you saw in Texas, I don't have any of that up here. But it would be really cool to well, to play with some post oak from time to time. I never have post oak up my way. So it would be really interesting if we can make that, turn that corner and see these entities like the Urban Wood Network provide like, you know, almost a, a, a marketplace for the users whether that's interior designers, architects, or the weekend woodworker, I think that would be fascinating. I yeah, know. I agree, and yeah, I am familiar with Cambium. They have they have visited us, and um, we've chatted about using their software mm-hmm. that we used to use. They have they bought a uh, some software called Lumber Tracker that mm-hmm. I forget what they call it now, but um, they kind of did some improvements and. Um, uh, yeah, I'm forgetting the yeah. name of it too. It's terrible. I hope they're not listening because we talked about it uh, on that episode. Yeah. That was like 40 episodes ago, though. I don't know. So yeah, yeah, I, they seem like they're they're all young people and they're really oh yeah uh, doing yeah. doing some interesting things. So. Well, and they're they're focusing a lot on the the government side of things, um, and and really trying to get the cities on board, um, and taking like a lot of what you have done on your own. Uh, like this log program the city of Austin has, like they're trying to do a lot of that and then just 
plug in the mills essentially and say, okay, we now have an agreement with, you know, the city of Des Moines, you know, okay, mills in Des Moines, here you go, you know, and I think that could be particularly interesting because um, they're a nonprofit, you know, it could take a lot of some of that difficulty in getting started and connecting the people who have the wood with the people who actually want the wood. Um, and then certainly they're handling a lot of that, like replanting and, and silvicultural side of things, which is kind of fascinating. But anyway, um, tell me about the, the, the species. Tell me about the woods that, that you're running into and what do you kind of normally have on hand um, in your, uh, your retail operation? Yeah, uh, this is something I can talk about. <laughs> right, let's, on, let's bring it back to about. what you can uh, talk about. Yeah, so we are, Texas, or Austin is in a, right in this kind of center of Texas. And so we have these different ecosystems coming together. So we have a pretty good variety of, of trees. Um, one of the most common ones we get is pecan, um, uh, which is, you know, closely related to hickory, but it looks totally different. Uh, it's, it has a lot uh, more interesting uh, grain grain patterns, patterns uh, some might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get a lot of pecan. We get a lot of oaks, uh, red oaks, um, like you said, post oak, which is, it's basically, it's in the white oak group. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have red oak group, white oak group, and live oaks. We have a bunch of live oaks here and, uh, we tried working with them early on and we just don't, don't, it's not, it's cost prohibitive, pro- prohibitive, uh, too dense of a wood, um, really hard to dry, really hard to post process. So mm-hmm. we just, we, we say no now. And it's unfortunate because there are so many of them, uh, that came down. We had a big ice storm this year and, um, the live oaks are the ones that came down the most uh, because they had leaves on, on them because they have leaves all year round. Right. And yeah. so more surface area for the ice. And so, yeah, a lot of downed live oaks, but uh, back to what we do work with um, is everything else. So pecan elms, we have uh, American elm, um, cedar elm, which is really great. One of my favorite uh, local species. It's endemic just to central Texas it's a slow growing elm. So it's got much tighter growth rings, uh, than, than American elm. It's very dense. Um, sycamore, cypress, bald cypress to be specific, um, cottonwood, uh, mesquite is really nice. So that's going to be kind of one of the darkest woods we have. Everybody wants walnut. Of course, these days we don't have a lot of walnut in Austin, but, uh, we do get, we do get uh, trees from time to time or logs from time to time. I would imagine so it's a very different walnut than what I'm used to as well, just based upon growing conditions and space. Yeah, walnut yeah, loves color. to spread out. It's a big tree when it's got room. Uh-huh. That, that would yeah. be interesting. Totally, almost. Yeah, we got we got a really big walnut from uh, Zilker Park, which is kind of our central park uh, in Austin, and it was like right in you know big open area. Uh, of the park and um, it's like 42 inches in diameter, which is huge just for a tree in general in Austin, but uh, for a walnut, uh, it's really big here. Uh, But it, yeah, color wise, much different than the commercial walnut that we get. Um, Lots of variation, kind of almost like a gradient uh, of, of kind of red to purple. Um, 
So yeah, mesquite, what I was saying, the mesquite is kind of our, our darkest wood that we have. And it's really nice, really dimensionally stable, slow growing tree, but they're usually really uh, funky shaped. So they're kind of a desert tree. And so they're, they're usually like winding around. Um, so it's hard to get really, you know, big, straight pieces of mesquite, but uh, it's great mm-hmm. for smaller projects. And it's, and it's, yeah, that's always been my impression is it's more of, you know, almost shrub like, um, it's not a Uh really tall thing and very gnarly. Um, It is gnarly. Yes. Or it can be. Yeah. But yeah, if you get into South Texas, you can actually get some really big straight ones. Really? Um, but we're not getting too many of those. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what else? So we'll, we'll pretty much take anything except for, live oak as long as it's the logs we say 18 inch minimum diameter uh eight foot minimum length um and uh unless we're talking about some like interesting fruit woods we'll get we'll take smaller ones like pear or cherry or something um uh bradford pear which um Mm -hmm. it was planted a lot here and i guess the 80s it grows fast that stuff is beautiful. Um, it's always got curly figure. Uh, we'll take those all day long. Um, if you know, if they're smaller than 18 inches. Right. Uh, and then Arizona ash, we get a lot of also was like, uh, something planted in the suburbs in the eighties, fast growing. Um, but they branch really low. So can't really get a lot of dimensional lumber out of that. So we'll do slabs out of that, but it usually has some nice curly figure as well. I'm not familiar um, yeah. with Arizona ash. Is it very new? Were you just talking white ash, but just grows in Arizona? Like is it, how different is it from like ash? Like the, the ash that most people think of the commercial stuff. Uh, it's quite different. Um, it doesn't grow tall and straight. So yeah. uh, color wise, the sapwood will look similar to, um, that, you know, the ash that you're probably used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the heartwood can be kind of a, a brown, light brown. Um, but yeah, it's, I believe it's uh, Fraxinus uh, velatina is a species. Hmm. I so it is a distinct so, species. Interesting. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and I think it's just more of a southwestern uh, native, you know, uh, it's not actually native to Austin, but people plant it here because it grows well, probably sure. because it grows well in the, in the Southwest. Right. Huh. Yeah. I've, that stuff is always fascinating to me because I actually just had this, I was talking about live oak on my last show and somebody was talking about California or coastal live oak and I knew it was wow. a different species and for the life of me, couldn't remember what it was. And some of those things are so specific, like your normal resources, you just, they're like, they come yeah. up empty. It's Quercus virginiana. No, not really. Um, I've come to find out yeah. it's Quercus agrifolia, um, the coastal yep. stuff. And I imagine the live oak you have might even be a different variant. It is. It's, uh, it's um, uh, Quercus fusiformis, but <laughs> we have virginiana here. Yeah. that people plant because it grows faster and they do cross pollinate. Okay. And so, um, oaks and will cross pollinate. So <clears throat> you might, I don't know, get some characteristics of both, but, um, but yeah, the, the central Texas one is, um, Quercus, uh, fusiformis. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. 
that stuff is fascinating to me. Cedar Elm was a new one to me as well. I'm yeah, just built something up, using great. American Elm. Um, and now I'm looking at this and very, very different um, than American Elm in many ways, just looking at the, uh, the technical yeah, it, properties and some of the grain structure. Very cool. It doesn't have that red, like really straight red heartwood. It has kind of a almost flamey, more purpley looking heartwood. Uh-huh. Um, but it's very, yeah, very dense. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, trying to remember the species name. It's, um, uh, Olmus crassifolia. Crassifolia. Yeah. 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 Um, don't, don't worry folks. I didn't know that off the top of my head. I'm looking at the page right now. <laughs> I'm good with this, but not that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just looking at the ingrain. It's, it's, I mean, the pores are dramatically different. Really so, cool. That's awesome. I got to check some of that out. You have some of that now? Yeah, we do. Um, we have a little bit, uh, I know, I know what a few I'm years doing. ago we got a, like probably 30 trunks from a commercial property. And that was really great because we had, we had a lot of dimensional, uh, lumber of that and as well as slabs. So, right. Um, but yeah, that we have little, we have a few slabs right now, but, but not a lot. We'll have some down the line though. Okay. Yeah, Which brings me to the, the next point. Um, you know, I was looking through your, like your online inventory and, you know, obviously lots and lots and lots of slabs. Is that generally how you're sawing? Is that generally what your customers are demanding? They're coming and buying it by the slab or are they ever looking for like dimensional lumber? Yeah, both. Um, okay. And the it seems at like the slab demand might be going down i don't know i would have thought it would have gone down years ago but uh <laughs> this, um, is, this has been a, a a ranting point of mine for about five years <laughs> like slabs oh, are yeah. folks <laughs> the turn yeah, rate on them yeah. is way too it, slow yeah well it might be i don't know we'll see um uh but so to answer your question though the how we choose to mill something is going to be just based on the log. If, hmm. if we have a nice straight log, that's, you know, 20, 20 to 30 inch diameter, we'll, we'll do dimensional lumber out of it um, for sure. And that there is a demand for it. And I wish we could have more of it, but a lot of times we're getting these funky logs because they're grown in a yard. Yeah. Um, and so kind of the best option a lot of times is, uh, is slabs. Um, but that being said, you could always, you know, you can always cut it up, cut the, the live edge off and use it as whatever you want, but it's still going to have some, it's not going to have straight grain basically. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's going to be twisting or turning or whatever, but, uh, there's, yeah, there's definitely a demand for, for the dimensional. Um, and we're trying to do more and more of it. It's, it just, we need to, you know, get more straight logs, basically. Uh, well, but, um, what, I, what I wonder, I mean, certainly you see the demand and it's hard to, to ignore it because it's a business. You've got a business to run. But at the same time, like, you know, that's the stuff that, that I do. Um, um, we, we live and die by NHLA grading and, you know, straight yeah. grain lumber and everything. And one wonders, like, do you need to go there? Um, certainly if the money's there and there's not, if there's not another place, like if you were up in my neck of the woods, I mean, there's so many lumber yards up here. I would strongly urge you not to go that direction. Like embrace your weird, 
Um, come on, sure, man, you're in sure. Austin. Keep Austin weird, right? Um, embrace that that unusual grain, unusual species, crazy, you know, stuff. Um, because no one else can provide it for you. But uh, I know a lot of woodworkers in Texas are like, you know, I don't got a lot of options. Like I, I can't go to seven different commercial yards within an hour drive. Like I've got up my way. Um, do you offer um, sawing services? Like if somebody finds uh, a slab and just board foot wise, well, that's what I need to build that table. Um, but I don't have uh, the capability to flatten that, or I don't have the capability to cut this down. Do you offer that kind of transformation, that kind of millwork service to your customers? We do. Yeah, we have a sawmill service. Um, the customer has to bring the log to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will mill it to whatever they want. Uh, well, I'm sorry. What don't. about the stuff that you already have, like your slabs in stock? If somebody comes to you and says, I want this slab of, of elm, um, but you know, I, I, could you rip the live edge off for me? Could you straight line? rip? Oh yeah, that? sure. Okay. I mean, you figure yeah. as much, but you never want to assume. So, cause that's, uh, yeah, our shop services are pretty limited. We can rip or cross cut to whatever you want. Uh-huh. We're not, we don't offer like, um, you know, we don't, we don't have a shaper or like, we don't, we don't do any specialty in sure, milling, but, sure. uh, but, di- but yeah, like we'll, dimensioning. We'll, um, cause sure. I, I'm thinking we'll rip of, a slab into a hundred one inch strips if you want. <laughs> right on. Uh, well, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, that that's the part that I wonder if that's, what's keeping the slab market alive because people started to realize I don't have to make a table, you know, that was no. like the slab table thing. And I think that kind of ran its course and even design wise, I think it's kind of on its way out. At least the design shows that I've been to recently, people aren't really looking for that anymore. But they're recognizing that I can still use this interesting wood, whether it be species or figure or whatever. Um, but I can I can build an entire cabinet using this yeah. one board, and I get that great grain match and color match. But exactly like moving it, as you know, you got a ten quarter you know slab that sucker's heavy, and you got to yeah. have a forklift to move it, and you know. Um, that might actually be closing off people to it. But I think the more people that have access to like these big slabs, the the cooler the furniture could be coming out of it. Um, it's just a matter of not everybody's, well, I mean, get yourself a track saw and you got yourself a straight line rip, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. As a, I mean, as a, you know, coming from a furniture background, I see that as a really great resource that seeing like, Oh, if I can get two slabs, I know they're from the same tree. The yeah. grain is going to exactly, like you said, match. And um, you can do whatever you're, say, a pair of chairs or whatever. And it's all going to look, you know, it's going to have the same same color, same grain. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. Start to capitalize on that it weird. It doesn't have to grain. be a live edge table. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, it's two woodworkers talking. We're like, well, yeah, of course. But I don't know that that's actually that obvious. I've talked to so many people when they tell me, because I've, I've said several times, both on this podcast and on my other one, Wood Talk, about how I feel like the slab market is dying because people are getting tired of slab tables. And then like I've heard people who've written into me and say, well, yeah, I go. And they got all these slabs and I just want to build a cabinet. And then I usually respond and say, well, have you thought about buying a slab and cutting any of your cabinet parts? And they're like, yeah, oh, right. Like it's not immediately obvious. Um, so. Yeah, I mean it does it does cost more, uh, yeah, footage wise, because you know we're 
if you think about um, materials handling standpoint, we're moving around these big slabs. Uh, they're not as much is going to fit into our kiln because they're funky shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just moving around, it takes longer to dry. Right. But, but the, we do give discounts to professional furniture makers. So there's that, you know, nice. you could take into account if you're a professional. Yeah. I'd actually maker. heard from a listener very recently. It said that, um, last time he had a log sawn, you know, by someone like you, he had a log and well, they came to him and did it. Uh, it was cheaper to mill it into dimensional lumber than it was to do through sawn slabbing, um, because of that material handling side of things. It wasn't, um, no, actually it was pretty significant. It was almost twice. Like if you broke it down to a board foot Just cost, to mill it. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I was a little taken back at first. I recognize why, um, well, I'm sorry, not just to melt, but to dry it as well. Like, oh, okay, um, yeah, that makes sense. To to process it, yeah. just put it that way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, yeah, to mill it, hell, it's easier, right? You yeah, know, it's easier. through sawing. That's yeah. why we call it plain sawing. Um, but yeah, the the whole the whole deal um, ended up being you know uh, a lot more time consuming and a lot more expensive, and frankly, could possibly be more waste sometimes. But yeah, from a board foot perspective. Uh, he had like two slabs and then he had him uh, dimensional uh, everything else um, because it was, it was like $10 a board foot. I don't remember the species, something, you know, cheap species like poplar or something like that. Wow. And it was like $10 a board foot to slab it. Um, and like $2, $3 a board foot for dimensional from there on out. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point that people need to be aware of. And I think also like, you know, if I, I love, for me, I love the idea of I can look at that one board and see, I can get, I can start to like nest all of my parts in that board, but it is a little daunting when I look at, okay, I need to buy these three boards or I need to buy this one board that's $780. And, you know, I might actually spend $600 buying those other boards, but you don't look at it that way, especially at a typical lumber yard. Cause it's not like there's a price tag. Well, some of them have price tags on the boards, but generally like you have a price list and you know, yeah, it's by the board foot board and foot. Yeah. you know, you're doing some mental math in your head about how many board feet this is. And even if you're really good at it, you know, you still go to the checkout, not quite sure how much that bill is going to be. And it ends up being $500 and you're like, well, you know, okay, that, that's, that still feels like I got more than I just paid $700 for that one board. That can be a little bit tough. So, you know, if I come into your yard and say, okay, well, could you, could you cut this into a hundred one inch wide pieces? Certainly you're going to have a, you know, a cost on that, but it still is a little daunting when I say, okay, 700 and some dollars for this one board, $800,000 for that one board. Um, plus whatever milling costs, it, it can be a little hard to, to spin it. But I wonder if that's the future. Like if we need to start more actively connecting those dots to let people know that, hey, this is like, quote, the better way to buy lumber because you've got more control over quality and color and grain match. And you can use that curvy grain like in that curvy stretcher or that leg or whatever. And this is sure. the stuff that you can't do when you go buy FAS, um, let alone common. Anyway, sure. This is this is the the lumber marketing guy who's kind of going off on a tangent at this point right now. But, <laughs> um, this is why, frankly, why I am reaching out to folks like you because to me it's truly exciting. I think this is this is the future of the lumber industry because yeah, I hope so. Well, I mean, this is where it started, right? It was small village sawmills, um, and you got all your lumber from the guy down the street, um, and you got your nails from the blacksmith across the road from him. 
Um, and you know, the, the, the internet has made the world much, much smaller, but it's also opened our eyes to, um, ecological concerns and political concerns. And sometimes it's like, I just want to support the local guy. And this support local thing has become much bigger in, in just about every city you go to. Um, I'll call out Austin. Like the thing I love about Austin is, um, in the airport, they don't allow chain restaurants. It's only like local restaurants. There's an actual, um, whatever covenant or regulation that the airport does not allow like McDonald's. Um, it's like the local barbecue place. I think that's pretty yeah. cool. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, that type of thing, we're seeing more and more of that happen. And the more guys like you that are out there means that we don't have to, we, we do have an option to buy local. Um, and it didn't exist yeah, I years think, ago. Yeah. And I think you said something earlier that I was going to respond to, but we moved on to something else. Uh, when you were talking, about I kept talking, and that's fine. You can say it. I no, didn't no, shut no. up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, uh, um, you, I think when you were talking about cambium carbon, uh, we were talking about connecting like architects and designers. And that is where I think the big change can happen is, um, getting the demand for this urban lumber and locally sourced lumber, getting, you know, designers and architects to start, uh, specking it. And, um, uh, I think then the people will follow. Agreed. Yeah. And that's, that's a tough thing to, to talk about. It's actually uh, very close to home um, in, in my job right now, because I'm, I'm specifically building campaigns and targeting architects and designers. And it's one of those things where they're not really, there can be a very well-established network and they don't really like go searching for stuff. So like just doing like Google um, analysis and things. There's not really large search volume for any of this stuff because nobody's really searching for it. It's all kind of word of mouth. It's all yeah. like right place, right time. Like a designer happened to see, you know, a, a, a board of yours or, or maybe saw a truck or something like that. And that gets them to look a little further or more importantly, a homeowner gave a little bit of pushback. Like an architect said, okay, we're going to use this for a feature wall. And the homeowner's like, well, I keep hearing about this reclaim stuff. Like, could you get me something cool for that feature wall, which forces that designer, or that architect to dig a little bit deeper. And we're, we're getting there, but there's not really a lot of outbound marketing to that particular network because it's very difficult to identify how to reach that, that particular customer. So we're getting there certainly. And companies like Cambium, and it sounds like entities like Urban Wood Network. Um, uh, you you brought up Sacramento earlier, um, and I'm forgetting. Well, I mean, the City of Trees, that's what they're they're known for. But like the Sacramento Tree Foundation, Urban Wood Rescue, entities like that that are starting to push this a little bit more. And what we really need is the municipalities, the cities to start reaching out and doing like lunch and learn type things for yeah. The designers and the architects and letting them know, hey, there is this resource here, you know, to go back to Cambium, there's this cyclical uh, economy that can be generated here. And there's a story that can be told and you can build your projects with a distinct local regional flair. And oh, by the way, you're going to get lead points for that because it's local. It is hyper local. Um, yeah. And there'll be no question as far as, you know, chain of custody or sustainability. And you're going to get, well, granted, would only get you about three points on the lead side of things, but still that type of thing needs to kind of happen at that level. And that's really where, um, hopefully we can kind of make that, that next, 
that next step anyway. But here we are. We're getting we're getting off onto the, the politics side of things. Um, let's kind of wrap this up and say, uh, well, first of all, um, I wanted to touch on your log pickup stipulations. You've got a really great page um, on your site that, that talks about, you know, if you want us to pick up a log and there's a lot of like, at face value, it's kind of like a lot of what we don't do, but I find it particularly interesting because where in the past, when I've spoken to people who, who do log pickup or maybe do mobile sawing, um, the return is very low, the, the ROI, because there's a lot of things can, that can go wrong. So people who are listening to this right now that are in the same business, um, uh, Chris, I hope you don't mind, but I want them to go to your website and look at some of this stuff. No, because yeah, you've please. Got some, uh, thank you, know, you. Go yeah. steal Chris's ideas here, guys, because there's, it's in one, in some ways it seems very rigid, but think about it. You, know, you think about like all the crap that happens once you picked up the log and all the things that's essentially like sucking away your profit margin. And, um, they've really, you know, down to the sizes, 18 inches in diameter or longer, eight feet and longer, um, you know, they're probably not going to be able to determine rot or damage, but at least you've got that in there so that you can, you can make that a stipulation as to why. Yeah. Usually the, you know, the arborist or tree company can. Right. Can tell yeah. Them that. yeah. Um, like uh, we're not a tree yeah. company. You got to call a tree company. So immediately you're bringing in another, like you're bringing usually a certified arborist who can speak to greater, like this tree's coming down. Hey, Chris, I'm bringing this tree down because of Emerald Ash Borer. So don't get too excited. Like there's liable to be some real issues here, or this is powder post or something that automatically, um, it, it ups your confidence level, I think. And it, pretty much guarantees that you're going to get a better ROI out of it. So I, I particularly love this. So I'm, I'm talking to the sawmill owners out there right now. You guys have got to be a lot more, uh, you got to say no more, frankly. <laughs> um, yeah. Boundaries, set your boundaries. Uh, they, yeah. That came from, you know, hundreds of phone calls, just saying the same thing over and over again is right. the tree in the front yard. Um, do you already have an arborist, you know, uh, what's the size and, and, you know, you can, um, send pics, send pictures, uh, you know, emails, pictures that way. Right. We can no, this, this is yeah. all the way down to like, you've got your stipulations and you've got your form that's really detailed. Um, I think that that type of thing needs to happen a lot more. We need to focus on disqualifying some of these leads more than anything in order to make sure that, you're not burning money essentially. Um, because literally the, the waste, you know, you're just going to have to end up burning it. Maybe that'll power your kilns. Yep. At least there is that, I suppose. <laughs> I but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to say because you've got this customer that's like wanting to, you know, um, well, I imagine there's a lot of them like, Hey, you want to buy this log from me? I'm like, uh, yeah. How about, how yep. about you pay me yeah, to come people, get it? People are, <laughs> People are very uh, also passionate and nostalgic about trees in their yard. And sure, unfortunately, so. we can't, you know, we just can't take them all. Um, wish we could, but sure. from a business standpoint, we can't. Yeah, I get that. So let's talk a little bit for the folks that are in Texas, specifically in the Austin area. Um, you've got a storefront. Uh, where are you? What are your hours? Um, like, when should they like tell, here's your chance. <laughs> yeah. We're, so we're, we're in East Austin. Um, we're about two miles East from down, of downtown. So pretty great central location. Um, uh, 641 Tillery street. 
And we're open Tuesday through Friday, 10 to 5, and Saturday, 10 to 2. And it's no appointments necessary. Uh, just walk in, talk to one of us, and uh, we'll help you out. We also, you know, we're happy to guide you along with uh, your project. I've got a lot of experience in, in furniture making. I teach woodworking as well. Nice. And, uh, yeah, happy to chat about projects, you know. Uh, all the better. Yeah. That, that's a rarity. I discovered when I, when I joined the lumber business world, like the number of people who work in it, who don't actually work wood is kind of shocking. Um, and when you find a, when you find a a lumber yard or a mill or whatever, where there's, you know, cabinetry furniture making experience, uh, it goes a really long way to increasing, like getting what you want. Um, yeah. So that, that we can't understate that too much. I will mention too that we also sell woodworking supplies. So, oh, nice. Basic stuff, you know, sandpaper, glue, uh, finishes, um, some, some tools, you know, hand tools, but, uh, right. But yeah, so you can, cool. you can kind of get everything, almost everything you need for your project. So then, like, if we go to harvestlumberco.com, you've got a, um, you've got some inventory, you've got a, a shop section in there. Um, how much of your inventory is actually on your website versus like what you actually have? Um, yeah, probably 75% on the website. I mean, okay. maybe, maybe 65, most, most of it on there. All the big slabs are on the website. Um, and it's all accurate. Um, and, uh, supplies are on there too, in most part, but we have a lot of, a lot of, dimensional stuff that's not on there um so call if you nice. uh, are looking for something specific and, and you know a lot of like odds and ends type stuff that it would just take too long to put it on the website but we have right. lots of stuff for small projects so we get a lot of DIYers um coming in and we have a there's a coffee shop on our property that a lot of people wander over from the coffee shop and didn't realize they were going to buy some wood too nice but uh so we have lots of small pieces <laughs> what's that you should have led with that you know no with the coffee yeah and, it, yeah and it's called flitch if you know what a flitch is nice. the coffee shop is called yeah that's awesome that's that, yeah. what a happy uh yeah very cool yeah so get get all like hyped up on caffeine and shout out buy to some flitch wood. coffee right on yeah flitch coffee i like that um and then i guess the last question for those that aren't local do you do any shipping i'm seeing mostly local pickup on the stuff on your site we don't normally i mean i we will ship obviously uh if, if, you know, you want to pay for freight, um, and we'll do it, but we don't advertise it. Um, it's mostly, mostly a volume thing, you know, like early on, um, our, our, uh, inventory wasn't as, as big. And so now we're, you know, we're getting, we have a a pretty great inventory. Um, and most of, most of what we have is surfaced already pre-surfaced. So, but, uh, we, we, yeah, we can ship. Sure. Excellent. So in other words, when I find that piece of cedar elm I want, I just give you a call because. Yeah, you can I'm, buy it. But I, I'm, <laughs> I, I liked Austin, but I'm not sure I'm ready to drive down there uh, right now. So. Yeah, you're getting kind of, uh, we're still getting some cool weather, but uh, I, would, I wouldn't come here in the summer. <laughs> nice. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, this is this has been really interesting. I, I love um, highlighting just some of these local guys. And I know a lot of people in Texas who always write to me and say, this is like a lumber wasteland. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And if nothing else, um, here's a place in Austin that you can go check out. I, I think it's great that essentially everything you're doing is coming from these urban felled trees for whatever reason and from from arborists and things like that should be some fascinating stuff if nothing else we learned about cedar elm and we learned that arizona ash is something different so uh chris i really appreciate your time i appreciate you just um you know kind of virtually showing us around your business and uh yeah folks you know you've got a place to go in austin now uh, and you can go talk woodworking so yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could be opening yourself up to some really long conversations there, but Hey, you know, we all love to talk about woodworking. It's fantastic. Yeah. We, we, uh, we do it all, all day long. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on Shannon. And just in case you missed that, you can find Harvest Lumber at Harvest Lumber Co. Uh, CO on Instagram or harvestlumberco.com. That's where they've got their shop online. That's where they've got their contact form, all the information we talked about during the episode. So if you are in the Texas, Austin area specifically, I say Texas area, it's a big state. If you're in the Austin area uh, or within driving distance, definitely go check these guys out. They have some absolutely beautiful stuff. And even if you're not in the area, follow them on Instagram because there's definitely some good quality wood porn on there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go buy yourself some urban lumber. Go buy it from the city. And you know what? Go get some Polonia and call it Kiri just because it sounds more exotic.